Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of Jan Martel in conversation with Matthew Condon, recorded live as part of our year-round program of events. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. We made it. Jan Martel, welcome to Byron Bay. It's great to have you here. It's a pleasure to be back. I, uh, we I was were here before, but I didn't do anything. I was just as a simple tourist. We were chatting before, and you warned me that um, in, in conversations like this, um, you could potentially, um, in answer to one question, go for 17 minutes. Well, I did, yes. In one of my stops here, and my publicist complained bitterly that it was too long. So, Well, I've done the math, just as a precaution. Um, I've got 29 questions okay. prepared. We'll be up uh, to two in the morning. So it's 17 minutes a question. That's 493 minutes, or 8.216 hours. Okay. Okay. So we'll see how we go. That is two in the morning. <laughs> I happen to say two in the morning. <clears throat> now, you, um, I read uh, that you first visited um, Australia with your wife, Alice, some years ago. And uh, the, a newspaper report said that one of your interests while you were in the country was to see birds, um, specifically cockatoos and budgerigars. I'm wondering if you're a twitcher, Jan, like Jonathan Franzen. Oh, uh, no. That interest dated to the fact that this was before we had children. And we had a, a conure, which is a small kind of parrot. So we had an interest in, in birds. But then we had children, and I've lost interest in birds. <laughs> <laughs> no interest in birds in Saskatoon, where you live? No, now my interest is, the first, it's funny, I arrived in, <clears throat> the first city I visited here on this tour was Canberra, and uh, the, a driver picked me up at the airport, and I said to him in a sort of casual way, in a very general way, that in the time I was in Australia, I hoped to see a few kangaroos so I could take pictures to show my children that their daddy's trip away was worth it. And the driver said, oh, I think we can arrange that. And within minutes, we were in a part of Canberra called Weston Park, and there were 30 tran kangaroos, <laughs> which was banal to you, but blew my mind. So I jumped out of the car and took all kinds of pictures to justify to my children their daddy's absence for 12 days. <laughs> well, good job. Of course, we know you courtesy of your extraordinary uh, 2002 Booker Prize uh, winning novel, Life of Pi. Um, a reissue recently uh, had a, um, a statement on it, uh, an endorsement from President Obama. Hmm. Uh, where he said um, the book was, quote, an elegant proof of God. But you, you dispute that? Um, no, actually, I don't. <laughs> um, I don't, because the... Um, that's a very good question, actually. There is that line in the author's note of, of Mr. Adidu Basame, who says to Pai, um, I have a story that will make you believe in God. And it's not a throwaway line. I actually firmly intended that, because... One thing we forget, in this age where religion is seen as a very coercive force, um, we forget that at the heart of religion is the notion of free choice. There's no religion that makes sense if there's any coercion involved. You c it only makes sense if you can freely choose or, or to believe or not to believe. And in that freedom um, to choose, a lot of factors come in. And I think one of the key factors is the imaginative capacity to imagine the differences in those two choices. Um, one thing that's, I have to say, by the way, to preface this long answer I'm about to give you, <laughs> my background is completely non-religious. Um, I, I come from a completely secular family. My parents 
ran away from the Catholic Church the second their legs could, you know, they can do it. And um, <clears throat> I come from the province of Quebec, from French Canada, um, which in the early 60s became a radically secular province in a matter of a year or two. Sorry, this is... Um, and I was a grandchild of that time, so I had no truck with religion for most of my adult life until I happened to go to India. And uh, two things struck me in India uh, on that uh, fateful trip was animals. I started seeing animals less through the lens of anthropomorphism, but trying to see them as beings on their own. And religion, which I'd only disconsidered, only looked at with great disdain. And the, the key insight I had when I looked at religion was that we apprehend religion through the imagination. And I don't mean that in an airy-fairy way. I'll give you a very, very, very concrete example, which is the Gospels. Uh, we have no historical documentation. And I say this, with, by the way, whether you care about Christianity or not. We have absolutely no historical documentation on the Jesus event. There are no direct witnesses of people who actually met him. There's no Roman administrator, governor, bureaucrat, soldier, merchant, philosopher, Nothing. There's nothing about accounting for his trial. There's absolutely nothing about Jesus except the four canonical Gospels, which are written 30 to 60 years after he was here on earth. And those documents themselves are not sort of journalistic historical accounts. They are highly refined literary accounts. You know, the parable is a literary genre. They survived, the, the Gospels are the result of decades of oral tales. Oral tales are very refined, symbolic modes of trying to capture a lot of information. Uh, oral tales is coded language. It's literary language. So it's interesting how this, this, this event that changed not only Western civilization but world history emanates from four literary documents, four acts of the imagination. Um, so that's why it suddenly struck me when I was in India that me, this secular writer, and this religious craziness actually had more in common than I'd suspected. And I started separating the craziness, the homophobia, the sexism, the patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera the abuse of children, all that evil could be separated. And I, I tried to look at what wasn't e evil, the quiet acts of faith, whereby someone who's religious basically transforms the world into a novel and it happens to be a religious novel. There's an act of the will involved in doing that, using your imagination, seeing the world that is transformed through those stories that give you faith. That's not bad. That was only five that minutes. That was only I about think. six minutes. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, and your new novel, it's a wonderful novel. Um, I mentioned to you earlier, it's a very moving book, and it, um, of course, is about faith, and we can discuss that and its, and its structure and so on. Um, uh, now, let's briefly talk about Saskatoon because um, um, I've read it's uh, known as the Paris of the Prairies. Uh, and um, you've lived there for now for many years, haven't you? 13 or 14 years. Uh -huh. uh, and yet you had a, such a peripatetic life prior to Saskatoon. Can you just, just briefly tell us about the place and why you've anchored yourself there? Yeah, it's funny. I'm used to getting that question from Canadians. <laughs> puzzled as to why I would live in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Um, you're right, precisely because I led such a peripatetic life, when I finally found a place that I liked, I became very attached to it very quickly. Um, Saskatchewan, uh, the province of Saskatchewan, has a very peculiar history in, in Canadian 
just as every good idea in the U.S. comes from California, every good idea in Canada came from Saskatchewan. So um, welfare, unemployment insurance, universal health, uh, the, you know, universal uh, health care, all those ideas emanated from Saskatchewan, from a party called the CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, which was this left of center party that took over the party in 1948. And they, they transformed that little hick province into a, a, a paragon of egalitarianism and progressive politics. For a while, the premier at the time, Tommy Douglas, was on the radar of the FBI. They thought he was the thin edge of the communist wedge that was going to overtake uh, America. Um, so it has a history of progressivism, and um, it's incredibly beautiful in a very subtle way. I often compare it to Mark Rothko. Um, it's very flat, which means there's a lot of space for space and for light, and uh, I find it breathtakingly beautiful. It's extraordinarily cold. The coldest it's been when I was there was minus 52. But as we say, it's a dry cold. And I, I tell you, a dry cold makes a big difference. Uh, if you're well-dressed for it, you don't feel it. Whereas you go to London and it's plus 10 and you're chilled to your bones. Um, so I, I happened to go there because um, I was writer in residence for one year. This is before Life of Pi. I applied and I gave it my best shot and I was delighted to get the job as writer in residence at the Saskatoon Public Library. And then I won the booker and they were delighted that I would got the job. Um, <laughs> But they've had a residency there, a nine-month residency for writers for over 35 years. Wow. It's the longest-running one in Canada. So it's a, in, in, now it's subject to this conservative party, um, sadly. But it, it's, a great, it's, a, it's, it's an incredibly high quality of life. And it's the right size. It's 235,000. I've realized that towns of between a quarter of a million and three-quarter of a million is the right sort of human size. It's, it's big enough for there to be things to do but small enough they can get out easily and establish a real sense of community. Now, I'm, I'm interested in that sense of home because um, it goes to the very heart mm -hmm. of the new book. And indeed, the sections um, are identified as homeless, homewood, and home. Uh, and you said in an interview, um, home and identity are now in constant flux or rearrangement. Home is now a construct, a compromise, a getting by. We seek now who we are and where we belong far more than we did in previous centuries. And I'm very interested in that quote. Could you explain it in greater detail? Did I say that? You did. God, that's, that's so well put. It seems so intelligent. <laughs> uh, well, it's true. It used to be that home was strictly a geographic reference. You know, think of a feudal peasant who would never have left his village. Home was simply what was around him. And home could be a completely uh, place of great incomprehension. You know, a feudal peasant presumably might suffer at the hand of his lord. Um, but nonetheless, home was... Whereas in, in modern times, I'll give you one example where home is, is... Well, first of all, immigrants, obviously. It used to be where people could not move. Whereas in, in more recent centuries, poverty would push people to move. Think of all the, oh, the, the waves of immigrants to America. Irish immigrants, for example. Uh, uh, French immigrants to, to Canada. Uh, Ukrainian immigrants to Canada. There's an, a very obvious case where home would have to change. But also in more subtle ways. Um, I think now home is no longer just a geographical referent, but an identity one. So a, a good example that I think of is, is gay people. There was a time when, when gay people would be rejected by their family and would have to reconstruct what family was. Family was no longer a, a biological link, but was one of love and closeness. So your friends would become, in a sense, your family. So there is a sense of identity um, being reconstructed. And I think identity and home are very closely linked. 
Um, we, some people still are very attached geographically to a place, but I think some people, home in a sense, is their feeling towards the people who, who are closest to them. And the geography, the geography can change, and they still feel a sense of home. I mean, for a man who's moved around an awful lot, and especially as a child, being the child of diplomats, um, I hope you said this, because this is another quote that I found. Um, um, well, to put it baldly, you better find your way home before the lights go out. Home is a sense of acceptance with one's mortal lot. Yeah, I said that. God. You did. <laughs> um, Excellent uh, quote. Yeah, just, just keep on reading. Uh, <laughs> Yes, that's, that's one of the points in the novel. It's called Homeless Home. Even though the, the section that's called Home features a Canadian senator <clears throat> who lives in Portugal, a place where he's from ancestrally, but he, speak, he doesn't speak the language. He knows no one in the village. He's a foreigner, and yet that section is called Home <clears throat> because he does achieve a sense of peace with his situation in life, with who he is, where he is, why he is. He achieves that sense of peace, and I equate that with, in a sense, being at home, even though he is on, on foreign shores. Yes. Let's go back a bit, um, if, we ca if we may, to Trent University in Peterborough in Canada, where you studied. And <coughs> when you were just 20, you were, in fact, toying with some of the ideas that became this novel uh, all those decades later. Can you... Tell us about that. Yeah, I was, um, I would say I was a late bloomer as a writer. I, um, I was born in 63, so Neil Armstrong was on the moon in 69. I was six years old. So like every kid of that generation, I wanted to be an astronaut. And then uh, that didn't seem realistic. So then I settled on being prime minister of my country, because when I was growing <laughs> up, there was a very charismatic prime minister named Pierre Trudeau, father of the current prime minister, a very uh, a brilliant, disdainful, flamboyant man and I was living in Ottawa at the time because my parents was, uh, working for the civil service for the foreign service would be in Ottawa periodically for a number of years and uh, I used to go this was long before an obsession with security I remember I'd go to the House of Commons and there was no security any number of politicians I could have killed if I'd wanted to as a 14 year old <laughs> uh, once I remember I bumped into John Diefenbaker who was a, a former prime minister um, so there's no security so I used to wander the halls of parliament I used to go to question period and I realized, in retrospect, that what attracted me to politics was not at all public policy. I've never been particularly a policy wonk. It was the theater of it. There's something intrinsically uh, dramatic, artistic, about parliamentary politics, where you have a government and a loyal opposition. I was, I, that's what I loved. There's Trudeau's extraordinary disdain, and his, his, he's a very learned man and the opposition that struggled to try to pierce his armor. Um, that's what I loved, and it took me a few years to realize that it was the theater of politics that I like. And then I abandoned politics, and at university, that's when I started to write. And the first thing I ever wrote, the trigger, was actually not a trip, but a movie. I saw, if you remember, some of you might remember, a long, long time ago, we're talking uh, the late 80s, a movie called Reds, with and by Warren Beatty, based on a book called Ten Days That Shook the World by John Reed, who was an American communist who was in, 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 in Russia during the October Revolution and came back, like many progressives at that time, hoping that uh, a similar revolution would take over America and turn it into a, a great society. And I saw that movie, and it happened that one of John Reed's friends was the playwright Eugene O'Neill the great American playwright Eugene O'Neill. And in that movie, O'Neill is played by Jack Nicholson, 
So imagine a young, charismatic Jack Nicholson playing this playwright. And it so happened that the previous summer, I'd taken a theater course at Trent, and we'd studied the plays of Eugene O'Neill. So here was this great playwright, and suddenly I see this incredibly charismatic actor playing the playwright. And it was the first time in my mind that I made the link between these wonderful thing called books. This was long before literary festivals, when you met writers. This wonderful thing called books and an actual human being. And I suddenly occurred to me, well, he's a human being. I'm a human being. Ergo, perhaps I could write. And so I remember <laughs> going home after that play, and since I'd seen O'Neill portrayed by Jack Nicholson, and he wrote plays, I would try writing a play. And so I wrote an abysmal play about a young man who falls in love with a door, a door, D-O-O-R. And a friend discovers this, thinks it's wrong, so destroys the door, so our hero promptly commits suicide. It was absolutely abysmal. It was embarrassing. Was it ever performed? <laughs> no. I only showed it to my mother, and she loved it because she's my mother. Otherwise, even I can realize that this was terrible. But the funny thing was is that I loved writing it. Uh, you know, having a setting characters, dialogue, a plot, my commentary on life. I just loved doing it. So I was terrible at it, but I loved doing it. So I wrote another play, which is this pastiche, absurdist thing. It was also terrible. Then I realized that moving plot through dialogue was not a talent that I had. So I switched to prose. So I started writing bad short stories. And it evolved that I finally decided to write a novel. And I had spent uh, part of the summer in Spain before getting to Spain. My parents were posted in Spain. Before getting there, I decided to say to travel a bit. So I said, why don't I do that bold thing of backpack on my own? And the closest foreign country to Spain was Portugal. So it was really purely geographic happenstance that I flew into Lisbon, spent three weeks backpacking there, absolutely loved it. As a sole element, a lone element, I was all on my own. I traveled entirely alone. Uh, to immerse yourself in a foreign culture really questions who you are, because you're seeing the, the, the foreign and you're realizing that you are different in every way, in your linguistic habits, in the way you eat, in the way you dress, in your habits of day and night. So it really confronted me to my foreignness in relation to theirs. So then I went back to Trent and I had this urge to do something bigger and worse. Instead of bad <laughs> short stories, let's write a big, fat, bad novel. So I started writing a novel and I set it in the most obvious, exciting setting that I can think of, which was Portugal. And, uh, but already there I was mythologizing it. It, it. it featured these high mountains. It featured a talking dog. Um, but I didn't have the capacity to create a novel. I just didn't. This was also before creative writing. So it, it just failed right away. I had all these little notes, these little cards that I put on my wall. It looked good visually, but it just didn't work. So I just put it aside and I went back to writing bad short stories. But I, I slowly got better. And then I got back to that Portuguese novel. Those of you who read Life of Pi might remember in the author's note, the author goes to India to work on a novel set in Portugal in 1939. Well, that was this novel once again. And once again, there's, there's a key element missing, a few organs, like the heart and the lungs, was missing. So it wasn't coming alive. And so once again, I put it aside. I didn't send it to Siberia with a return address in Bolivia, which is what I claim to have done in Life of Pi. I just tamely mailed it back to Montreal where I lived. Because I think artists are great recyclers, and uh, I ma mailed it to Montreal, and those notes laid low for a few years, and instead I wrote Life of Pi. And then, you know, another book later, after Beatrice and Virgil, I for a last time, a third time, went back to it, and this time it, it did work. Um, it finally came together. I'm thrilled that we can thank Warren Beatty for the creation of a Booker Prize winning writer. <laughs> Um, and and you, did, you have said about uh, the idea that you had for this book that you 
the idea was ahead of your skills at that point mm-hmm. when you were a young man. But tell us then about India, because you did backpack through India and it changed your life, didn't it? Yes. As I said, I saw religion in a different light, and I also saw animals in a different light. Until then, because before that I lived in Costa Rica, and in Costa Rica, being a tropical country, and we had an enclosed garden, we had all kinds of of animals. We briefly had a, a monkey, we had tortoises, we had rabbits mainly, but we briefly had a dog, we had a cat. We had all these animals, but I realize now, looking back, that they weren't really animals. What they were were moving little canvases on which I projected all kinds of notions, all kinds of children's notions. I didn't actually see rabbits as rabbits. Um, it took a trip to India and a novel that had failed and therefore suddenly pockets of time opened up where I had nothing to do really. I was supposed to be a working writer and I was nothing. I was just a tourist again. <clears throat> and I just opened my eyes and what was in front of me was this country of one billion people with a very ancient history. And I noticed suddenly animals in a very banal way because it's a tropical country. So I noticed lizards on the wall, rats, monkeys. So that's startling. I'm not used to monkeys as a Canadian. So that was interesting in itself, observing their habits, their, 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 their posture, the way they eat, their level of tension in relation to humans around them, because they're very tame, these monkeys, these macaques. Um, and then I noticed animals in religion. Very obviously the cow is sacred in Hinduism, so I started noticing. You know, it's startling when you're in New Delhi, a town of whatever, 15 million people, densely, densely urban, to have cows blithely cross, you know, Connaught Circus, which is this mad roundabout, a cow blithely crossing it, very secure in the knowledge that no Hindu will drive into it, because that's <laughs> such bad karma to run over a cow. You'd rather run over 10 school children than run over into a cow. <laughs> so they really are completely oblivious of traffic. It's a startling light to see that sort of this animal intrusion into the densely human. So I noticed animals, and I, I start, suddenly started thinking of them on their own terms, the fact that we rub shoulders with them on this planet, and yet we consider them so little. Most of us think very little of animals. We buy their remains in supermarkets as a commodity to feed ourselves, and then we have these a few, you know, some of us have these infantilized, domesticated breeds, mostly dogs, some cats, and then that's it. Otherwise, they just inhabit nature documentaries. Here in Australia, well, probably the same thing here too. You know, kangaroos are like what we call deer in Canada. They're sort of cute and they're in the background. But most of us, um, you know, animals are very removed. We don't live them at all, which is radically different from earlier times. So this trip to India suddenly brought close to me these gods, and they were sort of friendlier than anything I'd imagined. And then these animals, and I, I, the, 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 the alchemical moment which changed everything was when I made this link, which is why I wrote this novel, which I thought was completely insane, linking theology and zoology, Life of Pi, which I thought no one would read. Because in Canada, where I'm from, your average novel reader hates two things. They hate religion and they hate zoos. <laughs> you know, zoos are jails for animals and religion are jails for people. And they don't like jails. So I figured this is a novel that's going to fail on every front. Um, uh, but, but for me, the link that, that was that link of the animal and the divine. Because uh, I noticed, one thing that I noticed was this, for example, um, if you look, if you read up about, on religion, one character that comes through, and this is, you see this in Christianity, whether with Jesus or with saints, you see this in Buddhism very obviously, you also see it in Hinduism, in Islam, one characteristic, and it's not an obvious characteristic of holy figures, is their strong sense of presence. So if you read the Gospels, you get a sense that whenever Jesus is talking to someone, he's fully there. 
He's fully focused on this human being. And this human being, in the, the minutes that they're talking, a leper or whoever talking to Jesus, you suddenly realize that that leper is at his most alive. That for the rest, and this is indeed is a historical truth, because after all, Jesus never wrote anything, was an illiterate peasant from Nazareth who wrote not a word, was killed off very quickly, and yet somehow he survived in people's tales. And he certainly wasn't the only Messiah. There were a dime a dozen of these messiahs at the time. These Jewish crazies oppressed by the Romans who claimed to want to be the new David who would lead them to freedom, there were lots of them. And historians of the time will tell you there's dozens of them. Some who were quite successful in leading rebellions, others who were lesser known, but, they were really a, but they've all vanished from most people's consciousness. Most people don't know any of them. Somehow Jesus survived. And clearly it was because there was something so deeply charismatic about him that anyone who dealt with them, it just completely changed their lives. They just remembered him and dwelt on him and, and whatever he said became expanded into these waves of oral tales that literally transformed the world. Um, so there was a very strong sense of presence, of being right here, right now. The sort of thing that Buddhist monks are always trying to, to, you know, to tell you to be, be here, right here, right now. It's a big catchphrase of the 60s. Um, you get that in all religious uh, tales about holy people. What's odd to me and what struck me is that characteristic is a very common animal characteristic. Today I went to Lone Pine Point or Ridge, that little, and I was holding a koala, which had me melting. And I realized that koala is also right here, right now. Animals are, have very little ability to, to entertain the past, and their, their main access to the past is simply memory. Elephants famously will remember things, so do chimpanzees, and other animals have sh shorter memories. But they have memory, but they only access it in the present moment, upon a, you know, for example, upon a, a moment of recognition. And they have very little capacity to understand the future. They are essentially in the present moment. So there's sort of this oddity that in dogs I see a Jesus-like quality and other like holy-like qualities, and in Jesus I see a curious dog-like, animal-like quality. And it's us in the middle who have difficulty being in the present moment. We're the ones who are constantly obsessed by our past, troubled by it, and worried about our future. So it's that insight that was definitely at the heart of Life of Pi, and this one too, because this one, in a sense, once again, I'm, I'm intrigued by that curious imaginative phenomenon called faith and what it can do for you. So in this novel, I explore the presence and the absence of it. So part, it's a novel in three parts. Part one, I'd say, is an exploration of absence and part three of presence. And part two is the middle part where we aspire to presence, but we're troubled, bedeviled by absence. So in a sense, part two is a situation that more, I think, reflects, more commonly reflects the, the ordinary human condition. But we'll, we'll come to that. Because okay. the, three, the three sections are, are, are linked um, uh, in an extraordinary way. We'll leave India, but just another quote from you. And in fact, they're so good, Jan, that they should be on those calendars on your desk, I think, you know, Jan Martel, because you, this was late 1996, and you said you f in India you fell in love with faith, um, but more interesting to me, you said you were tired of being reasonable. Mm. What do you mean by that? Well, um, I'll generalize here, but being a boy, growing up, I was encouraged to be reasonable. Schooling 
is empowering because it teaches you the tools of reason, mathematics, science, geography, history, all of them use rationality in a very uh, perfected way. Then at university I studied philosophy, which is very good at honing your um, rational skills. Um, and there's nothing wrong with any of those. We have improved our lives immeasurably thanks to the tools of rationality. The, you know, the, the, the achievements of rationality are, are innumerable, whether it's man on the moon, vaccination, computers, planes, human rights, constitutions, uh, science, technology, everything is a triumph of close attention to detail and the linkage of cause to effect. Um, so in no way do I uh, want to denigrate that or, 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 or belittle what it has done for us, except to say that great it is, is it is not everything that we are. And it certainly has improved us as a civilization, but as individuals, we still have to use rationality. But it is kind like a tool. It's a phenomenal tool. Like, for example, a computer. It's amazing what we do with computers now. I talk to my family through Skype. I write my books. I check the internet, email. It's extraordinary. Nonetheless, it remains a tool. I can only use Skype if I have someone to call. And if I have someone to call, I have some affection for that person. That has nothing to do with rationality. So another of the insights that led me to write Pi was the idea, that the, the notion that you need some kind of faith before you can properly use rationality. And I don't mean religious faith, any faith, romantic faith, political faith, journalistic faith, artistic faith, uh, faith in a sports club. Any kind of love will then direct you as to how you should use your, faith, your rationality properly. Um, and so what happened when I got to India, and thank God it was India I, I landed in, um, is um, I was in my 30s, I'd written two books that had gone nowhere, and I was kind of drying up because I was excessively reasonable. And that that would eliminate the wonder of religion is totally fine, because organized religion has done so many evil things, it was fine. But what I noticed was it was also having me dry up even as a writer. I noticed, for example, that I was reading less, my, I was very impatient. My, my suspension of disbelief was becoming harder and harder. Um, and if, since I was a writer myself, I was saying, well, this is terrible. I'm a gardener whose garden is drying up. So, and thank God I got to India. And India is an explosively imaginative place, for better and for worse. It's a wonderful, terrible place. Um, but I saw there, every which way, displays of the imagination that went far beyond mere rationality. So in Life of Pi, as indeed in this one, I, it from, only for my own sake, and it seems to have reached other readers, I've tried to put rationality in its proper place. Now, it's a very special place, a grand place, but nonetheless, it's proper place. Because at the end of the day, and I remember for a couple of years in Montreal, I was a volunteer in palliative care. So every Thursday morning, I'd spend uh, four or five hours with people who were dying. And every time I saw those people, I realized that none of them would go to permanent sleep saying, I was a reasonable man, I was a reasonable woman my whole life. There's no triumph in that. It's precisely those, those acts of gentle craziness that you want, the, the crazy trips that you do, the, the, the moments of gentle madness where you fall in love or do something silly, those are what give the real flavor of life. And so we have to cultivate that kind of madness. Um, and so that's what, I, that's what I did with Life of Pi and what I, what I do with this one is, is, to, is to sort of reach that right balance. Just one discussion about Life of Pi. Let's just get it in perspective. Um, I th you've written a collection, of, you've published a collection of short stories that um, didn't sell a lot. You published a novel that um, equally didn't sell a lot. Mm -hmm. Then along comes Life of Pi, 
It wins the Booker Prize. It sold 13 million plus copies. And you went on a promotional tour that lasted two years. Mm. Um, just, let's just briefly touch that amazing period of your life and then we'll move forward. It was great. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, as you said, my first book, and listen, my first book, students, my, uh, my first book, which was called The Facts Behind the Helsinki Rock Amatios, story of an imaginary Italian family that lives in Helsinki. Um, it's a lovely book. I loved it. You know, my books are like my children. I, I love them all. Each, there was a purpose why I wrote it. There's reasons why I love it. Oh, I'll give you, you know, you tell me if it's not a good book. I'll tell you, uh, Helsinki is, is, is four short stories. The longest is called The Facts by Helsinki Rockamados. It's a story of two students. This is set in the mid-80s. One of them, as a result of a car accident in Jamaica and a blood transfusion, uh, uh, gets, acquires AIDS. And this is long before any cure. So he's on a death sentence. So over the course of about nine months, he spirals slowly towards death. He has a friend, a good friend, who visits him in Toronto because he's shocked. You're not supposed to die at 19. So he goes to visit Paul every week in Toronto. And oddly enough, when you're dying, you suddenly have a lot of time on your hands because you're no longer driven by work or studies. You just sit in a hospital bed. So Paul and the narrator, we had a lot of time. And eventually you run out of things to say. You run out of games to play. You run out of movies to do. So what they decided to do is they decided to create a story. Let's invent a story since we have Time. Like we're at a campfire, we'll tell a story. But it's hard to tell a story out of nothing. Just out of no, midair, pluck a story. It's hard. So what they decide to do is they will use the history of the 20th century as their guideline. They will create this family, the Rocamatios of Helsinki, and every episode in the life of this family, it'd be like a TV series. In episode one, something in that episode would have to resemble 1901. Any historical event of 1901 would have to be echoed in that first episode of the Helsinki Rock Amatios. And the following episode would have to resemble some historical event in 1902, etc. All through the... And so in 1901, what happened is when Queen Victoria died. So in the Helsinki Rock Amatios, the patriarch of the family, Sandro Rock Amatio, dies. And at his funeral, all the family members come. So we meet all the family members. However, the story is called, the novella is called The Facts behind the Helsinki Rockamadios. You don't actually hear much of the Helsinki Rockamadios, only periodically. What you get are the historical events that the two students choose. So Paul, who's dying of AIDS, and is therefore increasingly in despair, chooses worse and worse historical events. So it happens that his episode, episode 14, is his. So guess what happened in 1914? Fairly obvious. Bitter divorce in the Helsinki Rockamadios. Bitter, bitter divorce, resembling the start of World War I. Uh, the narrator, meanwhile, well, he's not dying, but he doesn't want to insult Paul. He doesn't want to be naive, so he chooses instead very small acts of optimism. So I forget, but one year, you know, the zipper was invented. And the zipper has made the world a better place. It's a neat little thing, the <laughs> zipper. You know, one year, the aspirin was commercialized. The aspirin did a lot of good to this planet. So the, the theme of that story is this tension about how we look at the 20th century. Is the 20th century World War I, World War II, Auschwitz, communism, fascism, Stalin, Hitler, is that what is, is it the, the century of the murder? Or is it the century of feminism? 
of, you know, of, 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 of the Geneva Convention, uh, of vaccination. You know, is it a story of an improving story or worsening? How do we read the 20th century? So that's the theme. So it was a great story, just no one read it. Um, <laughs> and then my second book, Self, was, really quickly, the story of a boy who, uh, uh, when he's 18, is backpacking in Portugal, as it happens, and um, he eats sweet potato, and that night, which is the night of his birthday, he transforms, and when he wakes up in the morning, he's a girl. She's a woman. A magical transformation. And she's a woman for seven years, and then she becomes a man again when she's 25. Seven years because of Tiresias in Sophocles, uh, who has his wisdom precisely because he was a man and a woman. Um, he sees snakes intertwine, hits them, becomes a woman. Seven years later, he sees two snakes intertwine, hits them, becomes a man. Hence why he's a, he's a soothsayer, because he's been both sexes. He's seen everything there is to see from the human perspective. So my character is changed. So there I was interested in trying to figure out what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. So I did all my feminist research, reading The Second Sex, Feminine Mystique, all kinds of exploring that vast, cacophonous, wonderful uh, perspective on life called feminism. And then I talked to women, and then essentially I just closed my eyes and tried to imagine myself a woman. Because one of the themes of the novel was the idea that the body is an environment. Just as we do adapt to our environment, literally, you know, in, in hot countries people tend to be s slimmer, in, in, in cold countries stockier. I was, you know, does the physicality of our body, the presence of breasts or of a penis, does that somehow affect who we are? Uh, um, so that was the exploration of it. Um, it was a fascinating book to write. Um, no one read it because most women like women, most men like women, but they don't want to be a woman. And most women like men, but don't want to be a man. And this was a, a book that very deliberately crossed that border that people didn't want to cross. And then I wrote Life of Pi, which I thought was no more, no less interesting than the other two, uh, but worse because I was taking on religion. Um, so, and then it surprised me how well it, it did. Yes, it did very well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which has led us to this book, yes. ultimately, uh, where in, uh, for your research you were observed walking backwards around the streets of Saskatoon. Yes, there's a character who walks backwards in Tomash in part one. So could you, Jens, set up the three stories yeah, very quickly, of, yeah, of the novel? So in part one, 1904, Tomash is a curator. And in one disastrous week, he loses his, his lover and their son to scarlet fever and his father to some sort of brain aneurysm. In one catastrophic week, the three closest people to him die. And... So he's absolutely devastated. And the first, his first reaction is to start walking backwards. He, he says, what am I to do when everything has been taken from me? All I can do is object. And his first way of objecting is to walk backwards, to turn his back on the world, to turn his back on God, and therefore look back on a previous life that was generous to him when he had his lover and his son and his father. Um, that's his first act of rebellion. So to make that, in all my stories... I find they work better if they have a feel of their similitude, if they feel real. They, I don't like fable-like stories. They don't work very well for me. So if I was going to have a character work backwards, I had to work on that. So, yeah, I practice walking backwards. Because you know what's, obvious, what's, what's curious in walking backwards? What's surprising is not what you do with your eyes. A quick glance over your shoulder, one or the other. We're very good with our eyes. We use our eyes very well. We'll quickly assure you of what's 10 meters ahead of you, whether you're safe or not. And you can direct yourself, especially on sidewalks, which tend to be straight. 
If you're looking back and you're looking straight at your sidewalk, then it's straight in front of you. So that's not the issue of looking. The thing that you have to work out is the actual mechanics of walking. How long your gait will be, how, how high you lift your foot. Whereas walking straight, walking forwards, we very automatically fall into a natural, comfortable gait. Uh, not walking backwards, you have, to, you have to actually constantly figure out how long your stride will be and how high you will raise your foot. So I had to practice that to get a sense of it. Um, and, and, um, Did your kids ever go, what's daddy doing? No, not kids, strangers. Because <laughs> I'm quite well known in Saskatoon. So people initially think that I was looking at a bird in a tree or something and then that bird is getting pretty small because he's been walking backwards <laughs> for quite a while now. And a few times I fell. A very few times I fell. Uh, so yeah, it was just more puzzlement. Um, uh, but it was, I love doing research. You know, I do a lot of research for all my books. And it, it's my way of staying in school. It's my way of continuing my study of the wonder of the world. There's a fantastic section in the novel where Tomas is given a vehicle. This is 1904. A vehicle to, um, um, to per- execute his journey his search for this 17th century cru- um, crucifix. Oh yeah, I forgot to tell you. So yeah, so Tomas loses his wife and therefore he, he finds another way to object, which is finding, he discovers his diary written by a 17th century priest in Sao Tome, which is a little obscure Portuguese colony uh, on the, off the uh, western equatorial coast of Africa. And his diary hints at an object, a very surprising Christian object. And he seeks to find it, hoping to give God his comeuppance with this object. So part one is an account of this very long, arduous road trip in 1904. Um, And quickly, part two is the story of a very long night at work for a pathologist who was working late at night in his hospital, in his basement, in his office, trying to catch up with work. And two women come to visit him. The first, his wife, who at great length, because she's a very, very chatty woman, at great length expounds on her theory about the similarities of the Gospels with the murder mysteries of Agatha Christie. She points to out to him how they're, they are virtually identical documents. Can I just read something about that? Because yeah, yeah, sure. It, the, the, the book, this section on Agatha Christie alone is worth reading this book. It's, it's astonishing. Um, and it's where Dr. Lazora, and as you said, and his wife Maria, they're big fans of Agatha Christie. And um, uh, the discussion that they have, uh, they look at the connections between... Um, Christie and the Gospels and there's this one little quote from Maria where she says I noticed how those who know the truth are always treated with suspicion and disdain that was the case with Jesus of course but look at old Miss Marple always she knows and everyone is surprised that she does and the same with Hercule Poirot how can that ridiculous little man know anything but he does he does it is the triumph of the meek in Agatha Christie as in the Gospels how on earth did you come up with that section of the book? I love that section. That was so fun to write. That came from... Well, first of all, I love Agatha Christie. She, um, I've rarely seen a writer who so perfectly matches her intent with her achievement. Um, every one of her novels that I've read, I've never successfully figured them out before the end. I have with her short stories, but not her novels. Um, they are extraordinarily clever. So I first of all just liked her in a, in a very sort of ordinary readerly way. I liked them. But the thing that startled me with her, that really got me thinking deeper about her, was that Agatha Christie is by far the world's most popular writer ever. In the history of the written word since the beginning of humanity, no one has sold as many books as Agatha Christie. 
uh, not by a long shot. You get in English these absurd comparisons. You know, I remember reading this that she sold more than the Bible and Shakespeare. And I thought, who buys Shakespeare <laughs> around the world? Is there anyone in Hungary who rushes into a bookstore saying, where is my Shakespeare? <laughs> in Mongolia? No, it's, it's absurd. Uh, but Agatha Christie, yes, is translated into virtually every language and sells. She's never been out of print. She sold into the billions. And I, what struck me is, why? Of course she's good, but there's a lot of good you know, commercial fiction that's entertaining. And no one approaches her. Why specifically her? First of all, why genre fiction? And why that particular genre? And why her? And that, that sort of just always sort of puzzled me, why she was so. Because, you know, she, was, she lived a long time. Some of them are not as good later on. Um, but there was something about it. And it was one of, once, once again, sort of these insights that uh, transform you as a writer. Because uh, having studied the Gospels now, it suddenly occurred to me that there were similarities between the Gospels and her murder mysteries. I'll give you a very obvious example, two very obvious examples. Uh, the role of the witness. In any murder mystery, Agatha Christie or otherwise, witnesses are always a key character. The inspector comes on, there's the dead body. He, the, the inspector will say, well, let me talk to the witnesses. And that's where you're going to start getting elements of the story. Because the prime person who might be able to tell you everything about what happened is dead. So you have to rely on witnesses. Witnesses are also key in the Gospels. They are, first of all, obvious acts of witness, i.e. The, the evangelists, were distant witnesses through oral tales, they're witnesses. But even within the Gospels, you have witnesses. So for example, um, Jesus never wrote anything. He was illiterate, like the prophet Muhammad. He was illiterate. So if he was gonna survive, someone else has to do that for him. Same thing in, in, in Agatha Christie. Most of the Hercule Poirot novels are actually written by Arthur Hastings, who was as remarkably obtuse as Jesus' disciples. If you remember in the gospel, Jesus is always telling these parables and no one gets it. So he has to explain his parables to his disciples. He constantly has to tell them, I'm not here for long. Do you not get that? He is surrounded by people as obtuse as Hercule Poirot is. Um, another thing that's very curious, a feature, you read an Agatha Christie. It's a compulsive read. They're just so clever, so engaging. You're so curious as to who did it. You cannot figure it out. Then it's revealed. There's a huge aha moment, and you, you say, my God, this is so clever. And then two weeks later, you've forgotten who did it. <laughs> and a year later, you'll pick up an Agatha Christie and say, oh, I read this. So, uh, who did it? Uh, I know who's dead. She's never afraid of revealing who the victim is. So, you know, one of the really famous ones is the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Roger Ackroyd dies. There's one called Lord, Lord Edgware dies. <laughs> She's very comfortable giving out who the victim is, just as in the Gospels, everyone knows who the victim is. The victim is very, very famous. In, the, in Agatha Christie, you forget who the murderer is. Same thing in, in, in the story of Jesus. Curiously, for a very, very, very life, world-changing assassination, we have no conception of who the murderer was. If I said John F. Kennedy, you immediately think Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, we, we usually know what the pendant of good is. We know who the one who, you know, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth. We remember our assassins. Curiously with Jesus, we don't. It just doesn't, 
It just doesn't appear. It doesn't appear in the story. We just know that he must die. And whoever might do it is always irrelevant. And uh, um, so curious, once again, a curious similarity. And you see that constantly. If you look at them, if, if in a thoughtful way you read a few Agatha Christie's and then reread their Gospels and put them over, you'll see an extraordinary number of similarities. I'll give you another small one, absence of children. There's very few children in the Gospels. There's one point when Jesus takes a child and says, you know, uh, believe like the children. It's one of the few children in the Gospels. There's an equal absence of children in Agatha Christie. There's a, one of her short stories features uh, a child murderer. It's one of the very few. Otherwise, there's an absence of children. Another simple one, Murder on the Orient Express, one of her very famous ones. Um, Thirteen characters. How many people at the Last Supper? Thirteen. Thirteen characters. One is a Judas. In the Last Supper, there's a very obvious Judas. There's a Dr. Constantine in Murder on the Orient Express who helps Poirot. Jesus' story, who helped Jesus, in a sense, more distantly, Emperor Constantine, who's the one who converted the, 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 uh, the, uh, the Byzantine Empire into the Holy Roman Empire, who converted Christianity. Um, there's these remarkable similarities, and I think they're quite unwitting. I don't think Agatha Christie ever thought of it. She was a very conventionally religious woman. There's barely any mention of religion in her stories. Very occasionally a character will mention God, but in a completely conventional way. But I think what, what happened was that in writing so much about death, she had the same effect of the Gospels, which was to make death palatable. Agatha Christie makes death a friendly, even entertaining things. And we like that because we're all, though we don't admit it, fascinated by death. You have to be really stupid never to think about death. Any reasonably intelligent person starts thinking about death because they know it's the limit of life. And life only makes sense in relation to its finality. So we know we should think about death. And so Agatha Christie helps us do that by being very entertaining. And there is something to be gained in reading her morally. Even when the murders are horrible, to think about someone's murder and its consequences has a moral effect in a very broad way. But it's incredibly entertaining, so you do it without even thinking about it. In a sense, Jesus did the same thing. He made death palatable not by being entertaining, the Gospels are not particularly entertaining God documents. They're not particularly good stories uh, compared to, let's say, the Iliad or other great ancient texts. Um, nor is Jesus himself particularly entertaining. He's about as humorless as curtsy. Um, but he makes death palatable by transforming death into just a, a, a threshold that you just have to overpass. And then, in a sense, the story continues. Death is no longer a finality. It is a threshold for us humans. Because until then, death was final. You know, any other religion before that, death was always a very hazy place. Look at Greek religion. It was always a very hazy place. Islam is post-Christianity. Uh, Judaism is largely focused on the here and now. It took Christianity to look at death with, in a razor-sharp way and say, you know, it's not a wall. It's just a gate. It's kind of a tough gate to open. But if you have the right attitude, you will pass through that gate and everything will be fine. Suddenly, death was less to be afraid of. And as I said, that echoes the same effect in a very different emotional tone, perhaps, but the same effect as, as Agatha Christie. Um, so that was a really fun, that was a much longer section, in fact, initially. Then my editors reined me in saying, you know, it is very engaging, but so we reined <laughs> it in. But uh, see for yourselves if you care to. Reread, you know, Murder on the Links or Roger Ackroyd, and then reread. You know, just one of the Gospels, Mark, for example. And you will, if, if you think about it, you'll start seeing surprising similarities. Uh, 
I'm, I'm loath to say too much about this book. It's compelling. It was a compelling read. The three sections are linked uh, by various motifs, and everything seems to oscillate around that little village mm. high up in the mountains of Portugal. It's, uh, to read the, um, the autopsy, for example, that Dr. Um, Lorza commits is astonishing. Uh, but I got through about nine questions, Jan. Okay. <laughs> and um, we're going to throw to the audience. Sure, let's do that. So any questions, please? Can we raise the house lights so we can see the... Ah. We've got a mic, by the way, somewhere. Can yeah, everyone okay. hear? Oh, you read it? Okay. Bless you. Manners of dying. Yeah, Manners of Dying is a short story in, in the form of, I forget how many letters, nine or 13, I'm sure it's an odd number, but nine or 13 letters from a prison director to a mother accounting for the last hours of her son who is executed. And it's 13 or nine, or nine or 13 variations on death. So in each one, the son dies in a different way. One, he commits suicide, when he quakes with fear, when he's stoically brave, when he goes crazy. Um, in fact, there's an Australian inspiration to that. The character's name is Kevin Barlow, because many years ago there was this two Australians, remember, who were executed in Malaysia, and it was it was news around the world. These, I think, one of them was a drug dealer, but one was just a poor sucker, and it was his first time, I think. And uh, every appeal in the world fell on deaf ears in Malaysia, and they so callously executed these two. They didn't deserve, either of them didn't deserve to die in any case, but particularly the more innocent one. And I think his, the, I think it was Barlow, I think that was her name actually, the mother's name. There's her, one of the two's mother did everything to try to save her son. Um, you know, there were appeals from, I remember the Pope, the President of the United States, everyone wrote to the, whoever the, and they were executed. And that struck me. But you know what, it, it, the intent wasn't political. Because politics goes nowhere in literature. To make a political point is to make an ephemeral point. I was more interested in looking at the idea that we're all under a death sentence. We are all going to face death in one way or another. And I was interested in looking at how people approach that. In a sense, I was echoing what I did in this one. This one is also about how do you approach grief. In, in each of these stories, by the way, there's an instance of grief. So Dr. Lozora loses someone very close to him, and in the last section, the senator loses his wife to cancer. In a sense, it's like manners of dying. Each one of them is, is confronted by deep grief, and I'm curious, what do we do with that? How do we deal with that? So in manners of dying, I was looking at 13 approaches to death, and I put it in this sort of maybe political setting of a death sentence, but it strikes me that it's, it's something that we're all under. We're all under a death sentence. But it was a great story. It's, it's a, it's a, it is an exercise in form because the letters vary in very subtle ways. They start in the same way. Dear Mrs. Barlow, you know, my name is Harry Parlington. I'm the director of Cantos uh, Institutional, da -da, and I'm here to write to account for the last moments of your son. And several, several things are repeated with slight variations. So every meal he takes varies. 
Um, things he might say varies, but I had to sort of work on that so that certain things would repeat each other, then change, others would change right away, but then come back. So it was a really, it was like a musical exercise in, 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 in form. Uh, it was kind of like the music of Philip Glass or Steve Reich, the sort of evolution and, and so slow, slow change, hoping to have a cumulative effect. And I'm glad that it, it worked for you. Thank you. Uh, well, no, I, you know, I dream of the Nobel Prize. <laughs> I dream of going to the moon. I, you know, there's lots of, that's the point of the imagination. You, 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 you dream this large, but you live this narrowly. So, as a writer, when I started writing, as a child and as a young man, of course you dream of success. But you, but then, so that, yes, of course you dream of some sort of manifestation of success, but I never dreamed in a very concrete way. And in fact, the act of creation it's a very Buddhist thing, in my experience, is you completely are detached from any end. You're never, you're never going to write a good book if you're actually thinking, this will win me the Booker Prize. It's, it's, too, it's too much of a lottery. Uh, it really is a result of luck. I mean, yes, I think Life of Pi is a good book, but there's every nominee that year, every final, you know, Tim Winton was a finalist that year. He's a wonderful writer. Well, Rohinton, in my year, when I was a finalist for the book, there was Rohinton Mystery, great Canadian writer, Carol Shields, Stone Diaries, it wasn't the Stone Diaries, but you know, Carol Shields, me. But there was also um, um, Tim Winton, that wonderful Irish guy. Um, William Trevor, wasn't it? William Trevor, and then there's another one. Oh, Sarah, Sarah uh, um, Silversmith, Sarah, um, Sarah Waters. So it was a really good, any one of those would have been worthy. So nothing I've ever written have I had a, concrete hope at the end of it except to write a story that pleases its first reader which is me you know I'll, I'll quote from Toni Morrison which said you know I wrote my first book because I wanted to read it um, you know I was I was excited I've been excited by everything that I've written and after that you let go the one thing I've learned in all my writing is and whether it's I say this is a successful relatively commercially unsuccessful book as and even with a commercial one is it's a gift any art, any act of art making is a gift, whether it's a painting, a song, even, a, even someone like John Grisham or Stephen King, or they still do it because they have a story to tell. They love telling that story, and then they hope for the best, but they do it because they love doing it. Stephen King in particular, for example, he writes because he loves writing, he loves stories. That he's been extraordinarily commercial successful, I'm sure he's very happy about, but he doesn't think about it. I just write, you know, I'll give you a very concrete example. After Life of Pi, which did extraordinarily well, freakishly well, my next book was on the Holocaust. That's commercial, a dead duck in the water. Very few books on the Holocaust do well. There's a certain attitude of been there, done that with the Holocaust, and it takes a sort of a surprising angle or something for people to be excited by a Holocaust book. But I didn't care. I was, I've always been interested in the Holocaust. I'm not Jewish, I'm not of German or Polish descent. I just, it's a... It's a historical tragedy that has always puzzled me. And so I decided to write a, a story on it. Um, I didn't care about the end result. I, I, wanted, I, was, I was intellectually, artistically curious about it, and I involved myself in, in writing that book, and it, it didn't do very well. Some people absolutely hated it. I had 
incredibly negative reviews in the US, some very positive one too, but some ferociously negative. Some people who are nearly taking it personally, um, that I sort of personally gone out of my way to insult them. Um, but you have to let go. It is a gift and what people do with a gift is, is in a sense their affair. You do have to let go. Do you ever go back and look at the older books? No. Hmm. No, I've just moved on. In fact, it's a problem because I sort of forget my own books. I forget mm. about Life of Pi and I, I, I just forget about them because I've moved on. You know, the book that excites me is the one I'm working on now. So right now I'm working on a book set during the Trojan War. I've just started it, uh, featuring two adversaries, a Trojan and a Greek. Uh, so I'm, all, all, I'm thinking every day about the Trojan War. Uh, that's the book that's current for me. Um, and these I sort of, uh, you know, I've let them grow up and move out. Don't your kids just say, oh, you're the Life of Pi guy? One oh, they're one totally. Up? They're so unimpressed. <laughs> they're so unimpressed that I wrote Life of Pi. Or... They like the movie. You know, my oldest is seven, and he saw bits of it, and he was saying, oh, wow, Daddy wrote about a tiger. I like tigers. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? The lady there. Oh, yeah, I'll repeat the question. If, but, okay, there you go. Um, you mentioned the movie making of Life of Pi. Were you involved in it firstly and secondly what did you think of the final production? I was minimally involved. They flew me to New York to meet Ang Lee, the director. I don't know why he wanted to meet me. We just had a, a, a very pleasant conversation in a restaurant in New York um, and then he committed to making the project. Uh, I read two early drafts of the screenplay. I had mixed reactions to the screenplay. I thought it was a little bit too faithful. I thought it took a, didn't take too many risks. But I sort of said, well, I should trust him and let go. Overall, I thought it was uh, visually a lovely, lovely movie. Um, if you read the book, it fulfills you visually, but it obviously doesn't have all the content, all the rumination. It doesn't quite seize thematically what the book was about. Um, uh, so if you've read the book, you fill in the holes. Um, but I thought he would have... The key thing in adapting a novel to the screen is you have to get to its essence, which means sometimes doing some ruthless cuts. So I would suggest to him, cut India. Even though video, India is visually very charismatic, forget India, forget Canada. I suggest that the narrative framework should be the interrogation in the Mexican village. That the interrogation between the two Japanese, and I said forget the Japanese, get an American actor and a Mexican so they can speak bad Spanish in front of Pi and have subtitles to, ha to have, which would be the equivalent of the Japanese that the investigators speak to Pi. And it would allow a famous American actor, because otherwise you have two Japanese actors, no one knows any Japanese actors. And have that interrogation be the framing device for the story, and the stuff in the Pacific be a vivid um, a flashback. But essentially have it be a conversation between three human beings. Because to me that's where the tension in the story actually comes between the question of what actually happened out there. So I had also suggested that he invert the order of the stories. That the investigators come to the village and before they go and see Pi in the hospital they say, well can we look at the lifeboat? And they discover these funny, funny little skeletons with long teeth and four legs and they discover these big hairballs of orange and black fur and they're kind of puzzled. And they get to the hospital and they ask Pi, you know, what happened? He said, oh, it was terrible. The ship sank and I was in a lifeboat with my mother and this poor Taiwanese sailor and this horrible French cook. And I'm sorry to say, but things got really, really nasty. And eventually, well, he killed my mother, so I killed him. And that's what happened. And the investigators say, oh, okay. And then the younger investigator would say, well, what about the little skeletons? Where'd they come from? They don't look like fish. I don't, I don't, you don't see fish with four legs. 
And then what about these hair balls? Where are these big orange, orange fur, fur balls fall? And Pilate say, oh, oh, don't worry about that. You won't believe me. And they say, well, try us. I said, no, no, you won't believe me. They say, well, try us. So I wanted them to tease the marvelous story out of Pi. So he'd finally say, well, actually, what really happened is the ship sank and there was a tiger on my lifeboat and three animals. And that's what really happened. But I won't tell you because you won't believe me. So that they tease that more marvelous story that it would come second. So you'd first get the human story and then the story with animals. But he stuck to the more. In the book it works better. It works fine because it's, it's not visual, it's, it's red. And one story goes on for 150 pages, the other goes on for seven. So that order worked. But I thought visually it would have been worked better if it had been inversed. But you know what? My vision, they, there's going to be a theatrical adaptation in London in the West End of Life of Pi. That was just decided a few weeks ago, actually. And so I've made that suggestion. And this time I've, I've taken more control. Not that I want to know, I don't want to stray beyond what I know. I'm not a playwright, as I told you. Um, so I want to trust that people are going to work on the, on the script. But I do want them to argue very seriously why we shouldn't do that. So I've made several ideas that I want to sort of vet, and I still have some control over it. So perhaps in the stage adaptation, we will do that. Um, inversion of the stories and some other little things that I thought might work well. So the movie, you know, I, I thought it was a bit of a weak screenplay. Visually it was dazzling and frankly I cried all the way to the bank <laughs> because I didn't get any money from the movie directly but as it often happens the movie helped the book. So when the book was doing well and it did w well for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks it never got higher than 13 on the New York Times list of bestsellers. Whereas when the book came out, it shot up for a few weeks to number one. And I was ahead, I'll have you know, of Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> um, so I said it did well for me in many ways. And it, if there's a door in the West End production, we'll know where that came from, won't we? Yeah. Any more questions out there? Yes, thank you. The mic's coming. <laughs> Hi, Anne. Um, you value the storytelling aspects of faith quite highly and I'm wondering your interaction with indigenous people they may be in Canada and Alaska um, did that teach you anything or inform you about the value of stories in faith uh, not specifically because to be honest storytelling and religion are they go they're Siamese twins it's interesting to me that all religions are narrative all religions tell stories um, whereas, for example, as a counterexample, science doesn't. Narrative isn't essential to science. There's anecdotes, there's the history of science. But, you know, E equals MC squared has no narrative to it. It's just a great truth. Uh, whereas all religions tell stories, some more successfully than others, some more excessively than others. But every religion you can think of will have, as said, features of, of narration. They will have characters and plot, action, symbolism, memorable lines, um, all of them. Uh, so not only indigenous religions, but you know, Islam, Buddhism, Jainism, uh, Christianity, Judaism. Um, that strikes me as it shows how deep stories go. Stories are a way of synthesizing reality. Because reality, in fact, is, is, is happenstance. Any one of you may go out and be hit by a bus. There's no meaning to that. It's just you're at the wrong place at the wrong time. What art does, and religion does, is takes that happenstance and synthesize it into something that is meaningful. So even stories that are nihilistic, 
You know, Turgenev was the inventor of literary nihilism. Father and Sons was supposed to be the first, you know, literary account of nihilism. Uh, L'étranger by, by Camus. Um, even, uh, even Sid Vicious, you know, the, the Sex Pistols. Any, any things that border on meaninglessness, it's, 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 it's an appearance of. Uh, uh, any attempt at creating something uh, artistic, and I define that very broadly, even gardening, cooking, is the creating of meaning. And the creation of meaning is at the heart of religion. Religion is all about ultimate meaning. Um, so they're, they're, they're matched. So the indigenous people are just, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're narrative in a different way. But they uh, do what every other uh, religion uh, does. What's interesting about them is, once again, they, they use animals a lot. Uh, certainly in Canada, I don't know about the indigenous people here, I don't know if, they, if there's animals are a key part of there. But in Canada, of course, animals are essential, essential characters in their religious narratives. To the yes, thank you. Hi, Jan. Uh, just wondering, a couple of questions. Uh, where do you write? Do you do you write in a small room or on a train? And uh, how do you write? Are you a kind of architect? Do you plan your plan your scenes and plan your whole story beforehand, or do you write the first paragraph and just see where it goes? Well, when I had no money and no children, I wrote in my bedroom. I had roommates, and I wrote in my bedroom. And then uh, I have four children now, and so I escape my children by having built a tiny little studio. It's it's ten feet by ten feet by by twelve feet. It's tiny, in my backyard. It has a nice solid door, and I go and work in there. And um, the way I actually work is, um, if no one, sorry, if no one is bothering me, I work for hours on end. Not that I'm actually typing. I, first of all, there's stages. If I'm reading, I read and I write notes. So my method, so the perfect example is Life of Pi. I read countless books on religion, on animal behavior, on shipwrecks. As I was writing, I was writing down ideas. Some of these ideas would be pretty technical ones. You know, what kind of turtles f swim in the Pacific? What direction do the currents of the Pacific go in? Um, what is a solar still? How does it work? How does a sea anchor work? So purely technical things like that. But other times I'd write scenes that would come into my mind as a result of doing research, either about religious, some religious aspect of the life of Pi or something to do with shipwreck or animal behavior. I'd write actual scenes. Just quickly, in, in the spur of the moment, I'd write out scenes. So at the end of two and a half years of research with Life of Pi, I had about 350 pages of notes. Then I printed them up, got a pair of scissors, cut those pages up, those sections up, and put them in different envelopes and put them in the order in which they would appear in the book. So the first envelope was called author's note. And in it I put the various little elements that you found in the author's note. And so when I started writing Life of Pi, I opened up the first envelope and I lay on my desk those various, and some are like, you know, little tiny strip because it's one sentence. Some would be more than a page and I'd cut them and scotch tape them together so there'd be, they'd all be in front of me and that would be the essential elements. That would be my starting point. And sometimes I'd, write a, I'd, I'd have written a duplicate scene, so I'd have to choose which is the best, or I'd amalgamate, I would join them together. And some things would be two variations or two directions that I might take and I would choose. Some things would be ignored, some things would be expanded. Um, and so that was the backbone of each of these scenes. And those envelopes covered the entirety of the novel. So when I started writing Life of Pi, when I started the very first uh, line, I knew exactly how it would end. Then chapter 100 would be an extract of the um, investigator's report in which they'd account for their um, 
inability to explain why the ship sank. It's one of those mysteries in life. There's evil is a mystery. Why things happen is sometimes a mystery. But they, the last line would be that they, by the way, the survivor has extraordinary story and they never heard of anyone surviving that long with a tiger. So they'd finally believe that story. That was in my mind at the very start. Because to me, when I write a novel, I need to know where it's going because otherwise it'd be like doing a plan, an architectural plan for a building without being told what that building is for, whether it's a school, a hospital, or a sports stadium. Form must follow function. So I have all those envelopes and I just go through those envelopes and I have some other envelopes that are thematic, that are just, you know, turtles of the Pacific, currents of the Pacific, Indian food. But the main core of them are these chronological narrative envelopes. Every book I've written, I've, I've written like that. And so when I sit down, it's a very dilettante process. I sit down when I'm actually writing and I'll take out those scenes and I'll, some I'll, I'll, I'll retype, changing things, add things. Then I'll weary quickly, so I'll play a game of chess on my computer or I'll check my email or I'll listen to rock and roll to sort of pump myself up. Then I'll go back to it. So it's a very sort of leisurely, inefficient process. <laughs> uh, but I love it. You know, I am slowly creating something. Um, and that's been the process that I've, that I've used. Um, and periodically my children bang on the door and interrupt me. And that's fine. You have described yourself as a writer, um, as a messy, untutored blunderer. Absolutely. I never took creative writing. I'm not a particularly insightful reader. Um, I... I, I took philosophy at university, not English literature. I didn't like the way English literature was taught generally, where every book becomes a puzzle that has to be solved, and what is the author's intent. So I have, no, I have none of the tools. My partner, Alice, is a writer, and she took creative writing. So she has these amazing technical terms. I remember once another writer, another teacher, used uh, the term process of revelation which was the means whereby a s elements of a story are exposed, or you, you start finding out about things in a story. Process of revelation. I never thought of that in those terms. Oh, God, that's very clever. Uh, so I don't, I'm completely untutored in terms of the craft that creative writing brings to light. I, I, I came to it by reading other people's books, seeing, you know, how did Kafka do it? How did Hemingway do it? How did Willa Cather do it? How did Virginia Woolf do it? You know, and just sort of... And, also, not having taken English literature, I'm not particularly good at literary criticism. So, uh, in a sense, I, I just feel my way through it. So, I incessantly rewrite. So, when I start my writing day, I nearly always go back to what I've already written. Not the entirety of the book, perhaps, but a good 10, 15 pages. And I'll change a word here, put a comma there, reinstate an adjective, which the next day I'll remove and reinstate the next day. You know, I tinker like that, but I love it. It's... There's something so deeply joyful about being creative. And we, we, we are like that as a species. Whether, as I said earlier, with gardening or cooking uh, or making love, to furnishing a house, to raising our children, these are all calls on our creativity. And the high arts, music, painting, um, is creativity at its purest. Because really, you are creating something out of nothing. Uh, and I'm saying this of anything, whether it's good or bad, but, you know, my really bad plays about the guy who falls in love with the door, before I wrote that, there was nothing. And now there is this terrible story, terrible <laughs> play about a young boy who falls in love with the door. It's still, like, we contradict Lear when we're artists. You know, when Lear says, you know, nothing will come of nothing, that's not true. Something can come of nothing. Out of a vacuum can be a story or a painting. Um, and to be able to, to be an artisan of that is incredibly satisfying. And I think that's what we all do it, and then we hope for the best 
when we when we gift our art. So I, I, I find it. I, I so I'm a blunder in the sense that I'm not tutored in it, and I've come to it uh, uh, just to it by my own. And uh, I'm thankful that I've been this lucky. I keep on reminding myself how lucky I've been that people have somehow met my imagination halfway. This book's getting very very good reviews all around the world too. So you must be uh, pleased about that. Yeah, I am. I am. It's uh, the greatest joy. Of this pleasure is exactly events like this. Because sometimes you get incredible, insightful questions. I'll give you a couple examples from uh, Life of Pi, which is the one where I really met so many readers. Uh, Life of Pi, in Pi, Pi is at sea for 227 days. I chose that because it's a prime number. I need a reason for everything. So if Pi is going to be at sea, well, how many days? And it irks me to just say, oh, I don't know. 92. Well, why 92? It's got to be a meaning to it somehow, if only for me. So I chose 227 days. Why? Because it's a prime number. A prime number is a number that's divisible by itself or by one. You can't divide it by two, you can't divide it by three. That's called a prime number. Um, and what I meant by that, only for myself, was that in reading Life of Pi, I didn't want you to have a sort of a cafeteria approach where you'd have a tray and you'd choose one quarter of this story and one quarter of that story. No, no, I wanted the stories to be indivisible. You either chose the story with animals or without animals. Each story, in a sense, in my mind, was a prime number. Now, would the reader get that? Of course not. Some mathematical reader might notice, oh, 227 is a prime number. Huh, how interesting. They might notice that. But it would be, they probably wouldn't know why. They would just... They might think he didn't even know, I bet. He's a writer. He wouldn't know. <laughs> then one day a reader said, how in, they asked me, why 200? And I said, oh, because it's a prime number. And then that reader said, oh, but you also know that 22 divided by 7 is pi. <laughs> 22 divided by 7 is, a, is not exactly pi, but it's a very close approximation of pi. I didn't know that. Another one, a more glaring example of what a reader will bring to a book, why a reader brings a book to life, is when writing Life of Pi... I wanted the tiger to feel real. I wanted it to feel, so I did all my research on animal behavior to make it feel realistic. But what the tiger might mean to you, the reader, wasn't my concern. I was like Gustave Eiffel, who was the engineer who designed the Statue of Liberty. In designing the Statue of Liberty, Eiffel, the guy of the Eiffel Tower, had to make sure that the Statue of Liberty would not fall over that her crown wouldn't fall off, that her head wouldn't fall off, that the arm wouldn't fall off, that she would withstand winds and all that. His concerns were purely of an engineering nature. To Gustave Eiffel, what the Statue of Liberty might mean to the Americans wasn't his concern. In the same way with Life of Pi with the Tiger, I just wanted the Tiger to feel real to you as a reader. But what you might make of it wasn't my concern, so I hadn't particularly thought it through. I wanted two stories, one more fantastical than the other, and to give you a choice, do you want to live a more, do you want to believe a more fantastical life or a more material, flatly chemical one? Do you want to dance or just walk through life? Which one do you want? But what you might make of the tiger was irrelevant to me. So I remember when, when inexplicably the book started doing well, and readers would ask me, you know, what does the tiger symbolize? The first times, I was speechless. I had no idea, which I realized dissatisfied the audience. You want the author to know what he's doing to have the answer. And I would sort of like sort of stutter and say, well, I initially hide the answer by saying initially it wasn't going to be a tiger. It was going to be an elephant. Initially, Richard Parker was going to be an elephant, but that was too comic. An elephant in a lifeboat 
was too common. Then for the longest time, pi was gonna, uh, the tiger was going to be a rhinoceros. Because everyone knows what a rhinoceros is, but they know nothing about rhinoceros. That's what I'd give as my answer, and that would satisfy the reader. But then readers would come back and say, well, what is a tiger finally that you chose? What does he symbolize? And, and I'd, I'd have these awkward silences, where I, and I finally said, well, well, what do you think he symbolizes? And I got these wonderful answers. You know, obviously because there's two stories in parallel, obviously that pie might be the tiger. I got that. But people would say, well, Richard Parker could be God. You know, we are traditionally in the, in the Old Testament, you know, the Jews love their God, but were afraid of God. God was a source of awe. And awe is a slightly fearful emotion. So, but at the same time, Pi, so Pi is very afraid of the tiger, but clearly, certainly by the end of the story, he loves Richard Parker and is destroyed when Richard Parker leaves him on the beach, when abandons him. So, clearly, Richard Parker could symbolize God. And indeed, in the, you know, in the Gospels, Saul becomes Paul. There's a name change, just as Richard Parker, in fact, is not the tiger's original name. The tiger's original name is Thirsty. So he switches name, just like this religious figure called Paul. But you know, so people started giving me these very elaborate answers. And what was wonderful about that is, I'd say, great, that's very intelligent. And the next time someone asked me, I'd say, well, Richard Parker could symbolize God. <laughs> so I started channeling what other readers, what readers had given me, back to other readers, and that has continued in many, many other aspects of the book, including with this one. So that's been the real joy of writing books that people have read and. and liked is to sort of see what they bring to it. And it's been astonishing to me that I go to places, vastly different cultures. And you know, the book Life of Pi did exceptionally well in, in Korea. I have zero connection to Korea. None of the religions that Pi discusses has any particular connection to Korea. There's obviously Christians in Korea, but there's no Muslims, there's, you know, there's no Hindus. Uh, it did phenomenally well in Korea. Something there, bizarrely, there's a, a, a wonderful mix of the two imaginations. And that's what has touched me the deepest, is that encounter with readers and seeing what they make of it. Well, um, your work has touched us too, Yen. Um, it's been a fantastic discussion. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to have you. Thank you. And, uh, thank you for here. Thank you for coming. It's wonderful, I said, to be at Byron Bay. Thank you. And Yan will be signing his yeah. books right here. So thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This event was recorded live as part of our year-round program. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from Byron Writers' Festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.